With thanks to Baileys, this is the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast. Celebrating women's writing, sharing our creativity, our voices and our perspectives. All while championing the very best fiction written by women around the world. I'm Yomi Adegake, your host for season three of the Women's Prize podcast. We have a phenomenal lineup of guests for 2021, and I guarantee you will be taking away plenty of reading recommendations. Each bookshelfy episode, we ask an inspiring woman to share the story of her life through five different books by women. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of Bookshelfy. I'm Yomi Adegake, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be joining you as your new host for Series 3. Well, I'll be lucky enough to be interviewing some incredible women about the work of other incredible women. Let me start by reminding you that this year's long list is out and the 16 brilliant authors and their books can all be found on our website, womensprizeforfiction.co.uk. We are still practicing safe social distancing and this podcast is being recorded remotely. Today's guest is the brilliant comedian, writer, actor, podcaster and presenter, Sarah Pascoe. I'm personally super excited as someone who's been watching Sarah's incredible trajectory on various different screens, whether that's been scrolling her Instagram or watching Last Woman on Earth, her latest BBC show, which sees her travel the world in search of the world's most endangered jobs. Sarah is a hugely successful stand-up comedian whose extensive TV credits include regular appearances on panel shows like Mock the Week, QI and Have I Got News For You, alongside numerous other TV and radio programmes. She wrote and performed the BBC Radio 4 series Modern Monkey and in 2020 created and starred in Out of Her Mind, a loosely autobiographical six-part BBC Two comedy series which cleverly explores heartbreak, family and how to survive them. If that didn't keep her busy enough already, Sarah's also found time to write two books exploring gender in the 21st century, Animals and her latest book Sex, Money and Power, a Sunday Times bestseller, which also is a hit podcast exploring the realities of sex work, stripping and porn. Plus, Sarah was on the judging panel for the Women's Prize in 2017, the year Naomi Alderman's The Power was chosen as the winner. I'm personally struggling to work out how you've had time to catch up with me today amongst all the other incredible things that you're doing, but I'm absolutely thrilled that you have, Sarah. So welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm really excited to be here. Number one, um, I love you and what you're doing in the world and your writing and I love books. So this is a dream for me. Oh my God, a a real loving. I know that if I start, I'm not going to stop the gushing, but yeah, I'm a huge fan. You are hilarious and super smart. And I mean, clearly very well read because some some of the books here, I'm like, wow, this is going to be a very interesting chat. (laughs) So yeah, I'm very, very excited um, and also love you. So yeah, can't wait to get started. Me too. I do like this kind of habit as well that people have sort of um, picked up of just telling people that they've never actually met that they love them and truly meaning it. (laughs) Yeah, but maybe that's one of the really positives about social media. We should remember that is it sometimes now it feels like, you know, people are familiar with them in a different way rather than just, oh, that person, I know what their work is. You feel a bit more like, oh, and I've seen them with their friends and I've seen them when they're in a bad mood and I know what they hate (laughs) as well. So... Sarah, have you always been a big reader? Yes. And I um, I think about it, um, my um, husband doesn't read very much. And, um, and quite often he looks at reading as something kind of very virtuous, very noble habit. But for me, it's just like him playing FIFA. Like it's just, you know, pleasure. And as a child, I loved reading and I was never 
made to read. Mm. I always wanted to read. And I think that's the key with children is that you can really put them off things like playing instruments, for instance, if you enforce it on them. And no one ever said to me, like, Sarah, here's a book. Mm-hmm. It was much more like, Sarah, get your head out of that book. <laughs> it was much more that. So it always felt like um, it was something that was mine out of choice. And mm. um, what about you? Oh, God, I think I'm your like your husband. Are you on FIFA all day? <laughs> it's actually quite embarrassing, to be honest. Well, I personally find it the, the way that I see um, reading as this, again, virtuous, massively mm. cerebral hobby. As somebody who has <laughs> written, written books, um, I still yeah. definitely place it on a certain pedestal. And when I was lucky enough to be offered this gig, I was like, great, a reason to read. Like, now I can actually read books. And um, yeah, I've been sent in people's, um, bookshelfies and just been frankly amazed at how many incredible books by women by anyone else really have just eluded me the, my entire 29 years so I'm hoping that off the yeah. back of this get slightly better at it. yeah that's it yeah that's it you've got plenty of time I think sometimes that can really help being pointed in the direction of like books you will enjoy because mm-hmm. if you just you know walk into a bookshop or just go on a book selling website you might just go oh my god there's so much and what if it's because we've all had that experience of starting a book and then going oh my god do I have to finish this um there's so many descriptions of fields um like how am I going to get through to the end and then you just don't read for a year because it's so off-putting so it's it is good to like hear other what other people have enjoyed absolutely so as somebody who loves books and reading you must have been in your element when it was your turn to judge the women's prize how was that for you well I was and I wasn't actually because I did so the reason I said yes was they said um um, they basically said we're going to send you 200 books you'll get them in like four boxes to your house through the months and that was incredibly exciting the idea of free books (laughs) and then they said and then what will happen is you'll meet up every six weeks or so and there'll be wine and food and you'll talk and it just sounded like the best book group ever the idea to kind of be meeting new people and some of them were authors themselves and um and yeah just and that's what it was uh, just like long evenings arguing about literature but so here's the other side I I hadn't really thought about the element of it being a competition Mm. And it's really, really hard. And I would say this to anyone listening who's in any form of the arts or creativity, competitions are so strange because you really are kind of discussing the worth of things Mm. that are so different from each other that it felt very arbitrary. Like having to choose a winner, having to like uh, get a long list down to a a shorter list, even things like that. I just found all of it really painful. Like, because I knew because of how long it had taken me to write a book and what a precious process that had been the idea of all of these books going on to the no pile Mm. like really it really hurt me like the authors could feel it or something so so that's that's what I would say I would I wouldn't actually ever judge a competition again it's really made me understand competitions a bit more Mm. and and the discussion that happens in the room that's that's so interesting especially because you know taste is so um subjective and as you said arbitrary so it, it really must be difficult to try and sort of I don't know, argue an author's case against another's and work out who's is, you know, technically better on what basis. It's it's, it's very difficult. I don't envy. And I mean, obviously everyone who gets selected is incredible. So that's it. You could have a short list that had a hundred incredible books on it. And I would have been happy. I'd have gone there. There's a hundred amazing books I'd really recommend. (laughs) Um, But obviously no one else has that. They were like, no, let's give people a couple of like reads to take away on holiday with them. Not a, okay, this is going to take you a lifetime, but you should read all of these books. Yeah. And also sometimes what you're 
arguing about is enjoyment. You're going, I loved this book. It was it meant so much to me. But then you could be arguing from a completely different point of view, like, oh, I think this is so important to the world, or it's very now, or what it's doing with language is so modern. Mm -hmm. And so, and how can you compare those two things? Like, okay, this one's maybe cleverer, but I love this one a lot more. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes you're arguing and the other person hasn't even read the book. So they're trying to say no the pushback and you're like you don't even you've not even read it you, you just said you've read one of their other ones like you can't like so, and so it is an odd thing have you managed to read more or less during lockdown more I have managed to read more but I've also been buying more books so it doesn't look like I've read more it looks like because <laughs> um, I don't know if you get that for every book I read I buy three because I feel like I'm really making a dent in my pile someone else might have this problem with like shoes or bags um, but for me it is just I, I wish I'd read much more than I've got time for but I have managed to read loads in in lockdown and and I've put them in a separate pile so I can actually I could point you to them and go that's this year or like as in like last mm. year like that was lockdown that's my lockdown piles so your first bookshelfy is Magic Faraway Tree by Enid Blyton and I am super excited to talk to you about this and why it sort of appealed to you because I know that, you know, you've already sort of mentioned in your sort of um, message about yeah. it that, you know, it's something that you got into as a teenager, <laughs> brackets, too old yeah. for it, which made me laugh. But yeah. also acknowledging that, you know, um, Blyton, in hindsight, her work was problematic. So, yeah, can you tell me what it was, first of all, that you enjoyed about the book? And also problematic probably isn't the right word either. I think after I'd written it, I thought, just say, you know, racist <laughs> than, like, it, problematic is such a like a a word that still excuses someone and obviously at the time I didn't know that mm -hmm. which is not to ex excuse it because she she was called out in the 60s mm. so but no one had ever said to me oh by the way Enid Blyton also wrote this mm. or also said this um the magic faraway tree the reason I loved it is that I really wished it was true and when I say that it was I was too old I was at secondary school and I would take Enid Blyton to school with me and I would read in the toilets at break time, which I know makes me sound like a really cool guy. <laughs> but essentially, rather than having to go out to the playground, which I uh, felt um, could be quite confrontational a lot of the time. Um, and and I did, I did, I'm not saying I never had any friends at school, but I did go through phases where I didn't or was having trouble with other kids. Mm. And I would just lock myself in the toilets and then, and just read. And the, the break time or lunchtime would just go so quickly. And I really like wished these people were true and like Moonface and Silky and that the, the, there were different lands that would just whoosh and appear and you could go and have an adventure. And I think that was what was aspirational to me about children in Enid Blyton in general was that, you know, Secret Seven and um, Famous Five, they had adventures all of the time and they had such a life that was so different mm. to living kind of, you know, Essex and London. It, it, they were lived near the countryside. Like they, they were always in, you know, forests or woods. And um, that to me it was the ultimate in, a, in a, an imagination exercise of like having a nice life. Mm, because, the you know, it takes place in a sort of enchanted wood, doesn't it, with these three kids mm. that find this magic sort of tree in it. it you know it is quite different I think to like the kind of media or, or popular culture that most you know teenagers <laughs> were probably you know engaging with at that time so it's really interesting that's, that that was something that you found like escapist and 
and enjoyed. Yeah, escapist is the perfect word. But it was, I didn't, maybe I did know that it was for real children. Um, yeah, and, and the other one, there was a wishing chair. That's another series that she wrote. Was um, about these, there was like a chair that grew wings and people and these kids would like go on these different adventures. And then, so I did, I read it. I think I was really reading Enid Blyton up until about 16. Mm. And then I remember someone telling me, maybe at university or something, someone mentioned, oh, you know, she took cocaine. That's how she took read, read her books so quickly. <laughs> Because um, apparently she wrote some of them like in a night, so like she just wrote, stayed up all night wow. on the coke and wrote a book <laughs> about kids in a forest. And then I thought, oh, and then I think I remember thinking, like, oh, like she was a real woman. Mm. And then it must have come up after that, so I'd have been older, but it came up, oh, you know, things like use mm. of gollywogs. And then, and then people are very defensive about a writer. They say things like um, a writer's of their time, mm. and they get defensive, like you're not allowed to criticize. But of course, you can criticise. You're just not setting fire to her books. You're not going, okay, let's have a bonfire outside. But you're going, oh wow, this person was so prejudiced. Wherever that prejudice came from, um, and and again, you then wouldn't want to stock a children's library with the books that did have like explicit racism in them. Mm. I really am interested in the point that you sort of made about you know being able to criticise these works without necessarily um, obliterating them or, or setting them alight. Um, would you say? that you know so much of magic faraway trees allure for you is about the escapism and about it being something that made you feel you know potentially safe or or or, you know like there was I don't know like this magical world that you could sort of you hoped you'd be able to enter and all of that do you think that whimsy that kind of childhood whimsy and um safeness has sort of changed with your adulthood perspective how do you look at it as a work in hindsight I think that's such an interesting question like so I don't have kids but if I did have kids and I was reading books to them I imagine I would be the kind of parent who really wanted to um, represent a truer world which doesn't mean that you don't have escapism and you don't have magical stories but you don't just have stories that are always about white people mm. or like and, and they're things that I would never have considered then at all like I wouldn't if it had been pointed out to me oh this person is only writing about this kind of class of children with this kind of background who look like this um that would have been that would never have occurred to me then because I don't think it was necessarily a wide, a wide discussion that society was having, which isn't to say that some people weren't pointing that out all the time. And I hope that there are a wider range of books for people to find that escapism in now. And you mentioned, you know, that part of the reason that Magic Faraway Tree meant so much to you as a child was because, or as a teen rather, is because of, you know, feeling that school could at times be confrontational, somewhere that, you know, you'd rather sort of be in the Magic Faraway tree world than necessarily Mm -hmm. at at school um you're obviously now somebody that you know performs is public facing that sort of confidence I'm assuming correct me if I'm wrong is something you may not have had Mm -hmm. at school so where in your sort of journey did that come from I think like lots of people especially lots of people in comedy but I actually think in in the entertainment industry in general they didn't necessarily have a very happy time at school but through being maybe a little bit weirder or odder or, you know, too big or too small, definitely not just fitting in easily, what they did was solidify that. And definitely for me, that's what became my career. All of the things that I would have wished at so much at 14 of like, 
having I just I just wanted not to be noticed if you Mm. just said you could just be one of the group and have the right shoes and the right girls would like to be friends with you I would have um, given anything for that and I remember sometimes adults saying like when you're older people will really like the things that are different about you and um, and thinking that those adults were really stupid or that they were just saying that to try and stop you whinging or like crying about having no friends and um, and then actually what happened and I think this is true of lots of people after college and then becoming a much more grown-up person the world is never actually as as harsh as school and um and but I think the experience was really helpful in terms of having a career where you don't mind being the only one on stage and everyone else is looking in the other direction um having a job where you never get to fit in because you want everyone to look at you I do think that that's that was the start of the journey that wasn't so much about confidence I don't know I'm that confident now but I must be but it's a kind of confidence that came out of the I'm going to make everyone look at me intentionally mm. that makes sense or and they're not going to laugh at me I'm going to make them laugh with mm. me like I'm going to get in on the joke it makes perfect sense and definitely something I can relate to like in, in many ways oh, really? yeah like it's yeah. especially when you sort of said that adults tell you that you know I'll all be fine everyone's gonna love what makes you different and so my mum mm. used to tell me everyone was jealous and I was like mum I promise you no one is jealous of yeah. my, <laughs> my really rubbish shoes <laughs> and the fact that yeah. like my backpack isn't like the right backpack that everyone else has I promise yeah. you no one's jealous they actually just think I'm weird yeah but yeah um I, I resonate with a lot of that but I will ask my next question because I know I'm gonna make this okay. all about me so let me not <laughs> um so again the Enid Blyton discussion I think your stance on it is very very interesting especially within this climate where god I really don't want to use the term like cancel culture because mm. it's just like yeah. who doesn't it's everywhere but there is definitely merit to that conversation and, and what it is and what it, and what true cancel culture looks like xyz um one thing that comes up a lot, a lot is the idea of can you separate the art from the artist and I think with Enid Blyton and Magic Faraway Tree, it, it seems in this instance that might be something that you feel we can do. And I'm interested in. Yeah, I always think this is about um, choice because people should have a choice not to read authors because of other things that they've written. So if we were going to translate this to like music, if someone said to me, I, don't, I, turn, I turn the radio off if Michael Jackson came on because of what I believe he did, right? And then, and I would think that's perfectly your right. But if the government said, the radio can't play Michael Jackson anymore. I think, whoa, that's so dangerous that we're now going to go down this path where people can't choose. Or, or say, for instance, Roman Polanski, let's say, in film. So we, he definitely committed a crime, an awful crime. And if people don't want to watch Roman Polanski films, they don't have to. But some people really love his films mm. and then they feel bad because they know he's a criminal, he's a he's a sex offender and, and it's awful, awful what he did to a child. And so they feel really torn about it. So... I think that has to be an individual decision. I think the problem is when, I think in most instances, but, so this is what I mean. It's like, so so if, the, I don't think that someone like Enid Blyton should be on the curriculum unless what you're going to study is the problematic nature of that person's work. Mm. You wouldn't want kids at school to be forced to read an author whose views aren't just like, it's not like being outdated. It's like, oh, that they're dangerous. Mm-hmm. If someone's bigoted, like you can't, you can't, be keep putting that in people's minds like if Shakespeare was transphobic they wouldn't teach it at school Mm. because it would be a horrible thing for children to to go through you know year after year having to read about it 
So I think that's the thing. It's like people are allowed their personal choices. That's what I believe. Mm-hmm. But it, but it shouldn't be that it's enforced. And then, and then you, and you do have to be really careful about the particular works because like the magic faraway tree, to the best of my memory, although I'm completely, obviously I haven't reread it for a long time, I, I doesn't have things in it that are nasty mm. about people or bigoted. I don't think, if unless I'm, I really don't think they are. It's, it's, it's like a magical world she's created. But I know that there's one book in particular that is, um, it's a book about a story about a black doll who then, um, that everyone doesn't like. Mm. And then its face gets washed and it has a pink face and then everyone loves it. Mm. And so, so like that book, I wouldn't be like, no, the libraries should have it in case people want to read it or like it should be up to children. It would go, yeah, you don't, you shouldn't publish that anymore. Mm. So I guess it's, there's a sliding scale, isn't there? But that also that's because there are so many authors where actually you start going, well, who will we have left? Who Yeah, just modern authors, yeah. Oh, God. This is why I love you, because I could not agree more. Like, honestly, I just think there's lots to be said. It's fertile ground for conversation. I think at the moment the debate is slightly too polarised, and I think that was just a very nuanced take that um, I really appreciate. So thank you for that. On to your second bookshelfie, which is a phenomenal choice. I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou. Can you tell us a bit about why this book has made it onto your list? Yes, and it's a book I reread recently as well. But So I read this book at school and I wasn't given it. What happened is that in English we had a section of the book and the section, I think it was a section that was in church and she was really laughing and we were, you know, analysing the language. Now, Maya Angelou, um, and I don't think there'll be anyone listening who doesn't know her or hasn't read some of her work is the most exceptional writer so she's perfect to study for for children at school because she uses language in a really really original way that her descriptions um I actually felt like I was reading a child at the time I remember that's what affected me so much is I felt like a child had written it in my head it wasn't an adult woman talking to me it was someone of a really similar age to me so we studied it a little bit and I then got the book out of the library to read the whole thing and I don't think I understood a lot of it properly when I reread it I was like oh I didn't understand any of this I didn't understand the racism she was talking about I didn't understand segregation there's a bit in it a really affecting piece of writing about a policeman coming to warn the family that um, the boys are coming but when he said the boys what he means is the KKK Mm. and they basically uh, in the shop took out all of the potatoes and the uncle had to hide underneath, underneath a shelf they put all the potatoes and onions on top of him and so it's just it's petrifying and, and mortifying and also it's all written through a child's eyes I definitely didn't take that in when I was reading it which would have been about 14 years old the bit that really affected me in general what affected me was that the powerlessness of being a child, mm-hmm. like that they get sent to where the adults want them to go. So for a long time, she thought her mum was dead. And then suddenly it becomes that she's going to see her mum again. She gets this Christmas present and then she's going to have to go and see her. And also like parents having partners, like my mum and dad weren't together. So my mum had boyfriends that I just hated so much. And I hated that I didn't have a choice of, over whether they were going to be in our house or what they were going to be like. And and there's a sense of that with her reaction to the adult world 
Um, and then there's this really awful thing. And I should say, if anyone listening hasn't read the book or know it's about, this is like my trigger warning that it it, um, it does talk about uh, her assault, uh, abuse mm-hmm. and assault at the hands of um, her mum's boyfriend. And it's 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 written about in such a matter of fact way. But I'm th- that's what I remembered, like literally branding itself on my brain as a teenager because it was the most terrifying thing I'd ever read about because she writes so brilliantly it feels so real Mm. and I know it is real but writing quite often feels like a story that happens somewhere else not that it like is happening to you as it happens to the character and and that's what she manages to do I think so amazingly is that everything is so visceral so when it's actually something that's an act of violence it's overwhelmingly so absolutely and you said that you mentioned that you reread the book quite recently when about did you mm. reread it last year so really recently. last year yes. okay so very recently so yeah I was just interested in you know given gosh the conversations that we've been having within the last sort of year or approaching a year um in terms of racism race relations mm-hmm. black lives matter the few times I've been able to sort of reread things certain books that I have read that focus on race in any sort of way have definitely sort of, I don't know, I've, I've approached them quite different. I mean, I mean, I'm black, so obviously like it's, it's yeah. still quite, it's quite different in terms of, you know, um, me engaging with a book about race is obviously going to be different to somebody that's non-black engaging with a yeah. book about blackness or whatever. But I do feel that certain elements and points jump out in different ways given like the the discourse of the past year I was just interested in how um I know why the caged bird sings may have read differently I mean obviously because the first time you read it you were so young but just also in light of recent conversations yeah well actually that's a really interesting point to point out because when I read it and I'm going to say this quite forgivingly to myself I didn't read it thinking I'm reading about a black person's experience Mm. I read it thinking I'm reading about um, <laughs> my experience. There's a kind of, um, it, I read books like that because the other one I would say that I read around the same time written by a black woman um, is Alice Walker's The Colour Purple, mm-hmm. which again is a very, very visceral, very um, kind of haunting book. And actually there's something about um, being a white person who doesn't even realize they're white yet actually mm. or what that means and because there are so many things you take for granted and assume is that I kind of felt like I was everyone mm. and so in, in a rereading I think that's what I was listening to much much more is um someone else's experience of white people because that's what she's writing about a lot um but in the in my first reading I just thought about like good people and bad people mm. like so the, she's the good people and her and her family and then there's like these bullies but I didn't actually even understand that as white people mm. something else and that is something that is uh, relevant to those kinds of books and it's something that I really heard um when when this conversation was happening um, and, and is still continuing was that um white people who want to understand racism better a white supremacy better they then the, the books or the writers they seek out seems it seems to be a kind of um they want to suddenly explore black pain mm. or I, I I did read a lot of writers or, or, or commenters saying like like read about black joy experience these things as well stop looking for misery and so that's the other thing that I was aware of is that um there, there's a danger to only reading the saddest saddest stories um, and, and thinking that represents a black experience or that anyone's individual experience represents black experience so 
I hope what I've got now is something that's more aware of those things, having those things in my mind at the same time. Mm. Um, yeah. And it does really change. It's, it's um, to be as like old as I am and still have huge eye opening experiences about being white because you just weren't confronted with it for such a long time mm. is um yeah I mean it, it's it's astonishing and I think that's what a lot of people had last year mm. was just just realizing how much they'd never even had to think about which is obviously is the um definition of privilege and it's it's really interesting what you were saying about reading the color purple and sort of thinking not not just the color purple but yes, I know why yeah. the cage bird sings and sort of thinking you know mm. this is about me and finding um yourself in in those stories um and yeah I would say that you, you should look back on it forgivingly primarily because I feel that in any good work the intention is often for people with completely different experiences to still find a universal sort of thread that they feel they mm. relate to because um obviously I was like keenly aware that nobody in the books that I was reading um looked like me or, or was like me but um I mean I used to have a really heavy sort of like resonance with like Tracy Beaker probably because of her hair and I thought yeah. oh yeah that's like that's her that's an afro <laughs> like when it definitely wasn't but like when I look at um you know the books that I got like, things like pride and prejudice which had like absolutely nothing to do with me I think just by virtue of me really enjoying those books and really um yeah just really enjoying the work I definitely sort of projected myself within in into those stories and I think um often when I'm writing I I, I kind of hope that's what people will do yeah so I think it's, it's part of why writing good writing can can change lives and and just um create a le real level of empathy that I guess other mediums can't necessarily in the same way because you can really yeah. put yourself in the I, I kind of love when, loved when you spoke about like seeing good guys and bad guys and then growing up and kind of realizing that it's like racism versus like whatever mm. else and and yeah like I think even as a child I as a as a black child still had that very simplistic view of like this is good versus evil but I think probably just understood slightly earlier that like you know um the, the understanding that it was like yes and racism is is that evil um but still yeah. do you know what I mean still was quite simplistic with it and would like read things like Harry Potter and be like yeah you know I'm slotting myself in not even as Hermione like who's at least a girl yeah. like being like yeah I'm Ron and that's fine because I can do anything mm -hmm. and that's that's the great power of writing isn't it so it is it absolutely is that I guess um my caution would be um in terms of sublimating experiences, which, which is, is something that, I mean, that white people can do if we're, if we're not slightly more aware. I, I do exactly, I, I think what you're saying is, is absolutely right. In brilliant writing puts you at the centre of it and is an act of empathy and understanding. But there's a danger to white people going, oh, I understand every, what everyone's going through because I've read some books. Oh, <laughs> so actually I'm one, I'm one of the really evolved ones who actually understands. Yeah, we yeah. definitely saw that. I was having this conversation with a friend um, just last week, actually, that um, we were seeing a lot of that over um, last summer, post the tragic... Mm. Um, killing of George Floyd that we were seeing our books sort of tagged in all these anti-racist racist reading lists and I was like you know the book that I co-wrote was actually written for black women to help us navigate you know racism and you know misogynoir within like society and I was like I, I, white people sure like go ahead if you like you, of course give it a read because yeah. everyone should read everything but realistically the connection between I, I definitely think that reading 
like books that focus on racism can um, very much sort of help create a, a real, a better understanding of um, your complicity in XYZ. But the idea that, you know, you could just go to Waterstones and kind of buy away and quickly read away, like, you know, basically yeah. a lifelong experience of like white supremacy and XYZ. It just, it was insane. And book, some people's books who actually had nothing to do with race, but just were written by black authors. And it was kind of like, well, if you take this anthropological approach and you know read this black follow this black person's instagram or twitter you will be less racist by like osmosis yeah. or something it's just yeah <laughs> yeah it's hard to be because in terms of like virtue signaling and i know that's used as a very insulting thing but um it, uh, there's a lesser version of it where i think subconsciously what people wanted to show bless them bless us all mm. including myself is that you wanted to show like okay i'm listening i'm trying yeah. i'm I'm on, I'm on this like <laughs> I, I really and, and the easiest way to do that was to go like here's me here's my contribution <laughs> I, it's a catch 22 i mean all of all of it yeah because if you don't do it then it looks like well then do you like that's the thing it's like it's of course it's performative but then if you don't do it then of mm. course it, you're in that space yes. where people might think that you don't care and you know it's, it's, it's not spoken out yeah where's your engagement this that and the other I I really liked um I because it was the most ironical thing in the world when people would um tweet that they were listening because <laughs> tweeting is talking yeah. so it's like you're going I'm listening I'm listening I'm listening it's like oh, wait, you're shouting at everyone <laughs> This podcast is made in partnership with Bailey's Irish Cream. Bailey's is proudly supporting the Women's Prize for Fiction by helping showcase incredible writing by remarkable women, celebrating their accomplishments and getting more of their books into the hands of more people. Bailey's is the perfect adult treat, whether in coffee, over ice cream or paired with your favourite book. Enjoying the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast? Share the literary love and be part of the future of the Women's Prize Trust by making a one-off donation to support our important work as a charity. Donations of all sizes help us to continue empowering women, regardless of their age, race, nationality or background, to raise their voice and own their story. Search for Support the Women's Prize to find out more. So your third book, Shelfie, is The Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. Tell me more about this book. I know that you yeah. have mentioned that it's a controversial choice. I feel like your, your choices are definitely outside of the box. I'm really feeling it. So Ayn Rand, yeah, I definitely wasn't are. expecting. <laughs> well, this is the thing sometimes about the books that stay with us. I, when you read a lot, a lot of novels that I read that I absolutely love, and I'm like, oh well, well, eating it up yum 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 and then I read them and I put them down and then I forget all the characters and I forget what happens and a year later I'd say you oh that's so good and you go what's it about and I go I don't know anymore like I've forgotten <laughs> whereas The Fountainhead I didn't realize how controversial it was I read it after university maybe when I was about 27 28 and the reason I found it very profound one is because this author um, who I didn't know her association so I didn't know that she was Margaret Thatcher's favorite author and that all of them are American you know, um, I guess, um, what do they, 
anyway, the, the right, the extreme right, alt-right, mm. that, that, that they really love her. I didn't know that. I just thought she was a novelist who had this philosophy, which is called objectivism. And it really correlated with how my dad lives his life, actually. So my dad believes that you can't make, um, you can't make anyone happy unless you're happy yourself. Mm. That there's no point like martyring to other people because you won't be a great person to be around, that, that, um, that you'll be very bitter. And so he, he always had this philosophy that, was similar to hers and I really kind of believed in it that, that that choice is so important but anyway the fountainhead itself is essentially about an architect and it's about how there are two kinds of people in the world there are the people who would like to be famous even if they don't do the work so the example in the book I'm really simplifying it but is that some architects would like um the really huge beautiful building if you could say oh they made it even if they didn't they would rather that than be the person who made it but doesn't get the credit mm. Whereas there are some people who'd be so desperate to get their building made for it to exist in the world, their work of art, their genius, their creation, that they'd be happy not to have their name on it if it existed. Mm. And it's about how all creation is compromise. And the thing about architecture, which I'd never even thought about, was that architects, people have to actually want to live inside their work. And so there's so much compromise because the person who gets to live in there or work in there gets to tell you what they want. So you might have a vision in your head of something you'd like to exist and it's a bit like getting notes when you're writing, actually. I don't know how you found that experience, but where there's there's something that feels so important and makes so much sense to you and having an editor go, what's this? I don't get it. Mm-hmm. Or just cut that, it's too long. And you're like, that's the nub of what I'm saying. And, and no, no, it's not clear. And the idea of like another human mind, it, it doesn't matter what's in your head. It matters how another human translates it. So anyway, it, for me, the whole book was about creativity. So while it is a story, there's all these kind of like, ideas in it so she doesn't write amazing novels but I found this one to be incredible and then I spoke about it on Radio 4 they have a show called the the good a good read Mm. and uh, what happens is that three people all pick a book and then you talk about it and I hadn't realized that this was a controversial book so I just picked it I'd recently read it I thought it was so interesting thought I could talk about it and then they took me to task I really didn't realize they both hated it they both thought I was awful for choosing it and it's the most abuse I've ever had for anything no. where oh, God. so afterwards especially like with radio and I just did it because I didn't know that she was a right-wing author um I had people like write to me go the only people who like her are evil and that's how I know you're evil now or yeah people you know that thing where it's just like a really bad kind of death threat and you think wow the fact that a novel a novelist can create that kind of um vitriol in people because of what she now represents how she's been absorbed by a a political movement Mm. is um because actually the novel itself, I mean, I read the other one, the really big one, Atlas Shrugged, and that one is far, far, um, I would say, more brutal in how she felt about humanity. Um, like she she has one bit in it where an entire train load of um, people are gassed accidentally and she goes through the train and tells you why each person, including children, deserved to die Jesus. because of, yeah, because they were liberal. <laughs> Um, because they thought the government should have like uh, 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 that there should be like a social safety nets or things like this, and the reason they were all gassed is because um, they were trying to get like cheap fuel for the national rail, and that's why they all deserve to die. So it's yeah, so there yeah. is extremity in Anne Rand, but I also think she's a very interesting person, and it's very interesting to read stuff that's completely different to how you feel. Mm. I think that it's important sometimes as a mental exercise to read things you disagree with and 
to find out what does correlate or how you would argue back or I think um so so I don't I don't think reading an author I mean I haven't read you know like Mein Kampf or anything but I understand that of people who do there's there's an exercise there where they're interested but it doesn't mean that they're a fascist I respect that answer so much because I could not agree more I feel like I've had times where people have sort of asked me why I'm following a certain person on Twitter like I mean I'm a journalist so it's like if I'm following Donald Trump I can guarantee you it's not because I'm endorsing his views it's literally like it's just you know I've I've been asked why I'm I don't know like reading certain things or engaging with certain publications Mm -hmm. and for me I know what I believe because I you know engage with politics and viewpoints that aren't that I don't hold and that there's a difference I think between actually being aware of those arguments so that you can combat and debate them compared to endorsing them I don't think um you know people have to put in their bio like retweets aren't endorsements I don't think actually Mm -hmm. reading something is necessarily an endorsement of it and I think even even sometimes you know with something such as um the fountainhead I think even an endorsement of that work is not necessarily an endorsement of bloody Ayn Rand and 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 I really respect the fact that despite Mm -hmm. the vitriol that you received on um Radio 4 for making that choice you've chosen it again (laughs) you the reason I did actually I was going to say that there there can be a thing if you're the only person and it would more often happen like in a friendship group Mm -hmm. like if you are the only person who likes a certain band or um or if a certain you know a film is your favorite film and everyone else thinks it's rubbish you do occasionally have to defend yourself Mm -hmm. when everyone else goes like oh my god that is so bad and I do think that that's a strength of character because there's a point in my life where I would have instantly backed down and gone oh yeah you're right you're right okay fine I'm 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 really sh- I, 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 no, I don't like it either actually like I don't know why I said that and there does come something with age where you just have to kind of back down and go I'm just going to tell you why I liked it I'm not telling you you're wrong to dislike it or not enjoy it or any of those things because it affected me so much while I was reading it I honestly felt I was having this really interesting discussion with the author so the ideas in that and um, especially because I wanted to be a creative were really valuable because I kept testing like what would I do in this situation and what do I want to be in the world and and that's a really useful thing to think mm. about. I completely agree in terms of having to sometimes doubly defend your viewpoint to just make sure that you know it's clear that mm-hmm. I'm not a bad person I don't have bad taste this is just this is just something that that I like and I think yeah. even the fact that you know there's clearly such a nuanced sort of understanding in terms of your choices from Ayn Rand to Enid Blyton the conversation that we've had has been very critical of both of um, them as individuals Mm. and their viewpoints while still being able to respect um, their work essentially you know when you sort of said that you know there's a point in your life that you may have just backed down and uh, immediately and Mm. you know you could have sent something in completely differently that you know everyone would agree with and be like yeah of course I love him Amanda too like how difficult is it for you as a visible and vocal woman to continue to I suppose stand by your choices that might be slightly more controversial or often just different because I feel like lots of the women I know that are working visibly are they're just terrified of tweeting instagramming saying anything because they're just like if they're like oh I really like the just eat advert or something everybody's gonna mm-hmm. tell them a way in which in which that's in some yeah. way problematic or awful so yeah. yeah how do you how do you do it so one thing and I say this to anyone and actually 
it's not just women in the public eye, it's any woman, you're going to get told off constantly anyway. Like it doesn't matter how good you are, someone will find something you did wrong or another blind spot. And the more you apologize, the more you will have to apologize. So that's just the world actually the way that it is now. Um, I things that people call me out on are so ridiculous that some of them are really funny. Um, I got a, a message, an email to my website complaining that I'd done an Instagram like a, a video, so like a, um, on my stories, and it was me with these like little dog stickers. Now I have to say these dog stickers weren't photographs; they were pictures, like drawn cartoons, mm. and the dogs have got hats on or bows or like little canes. And this woman was angry with me because she said that I was encouraging inbreeding in animals. <laughs> And as it like, like, so like all these dogs who like have heart problems and bad backs, etc. And I wrote back to her and I was like, you're not seriously saying that's my fault. And and she wrote back and she said, you making dogs look look cute makes people want cute dogs. And then I wrote back and I honestly, and I said to her, she said, I really thought you'd understand me. I said, they weren't even pictures. I said, they were, they were, you know, they were drawn. It's just like even cuter because they had hats on and bows. (laughs) I know. So, and that's what I would use as an example is sometimes you just have to go. There are lots of really valid pushbacks and criticisms and have you thought about this, but it is exhausting. And I think people are allowed to switch off from it. The only responsibility I think we have, and also we all come up with our own moral code, is like you shouldn't be like insensitive to making the world worse. So, you know, if your ideas are controversial because people say like, you know that you're making people's lives more difficult or, you know, if you use that language, that is then awful for people who maybe aren't like you, but consider this from their perspective. And if you don't care, I think that's not a very nice way to live because we're a social animal living all together. But I also think like the discussion stuff, as long as it's not hurting anyone, the nightmare would be, oh, you're going to make someone cry. Mm -hmm. You're going to be on TV or the radio and someone's going to start crying going, actually, Anne Rand ruined my life. But I don't think that would happen with someone like her. Mm -hmm. And I do think a little bit, I do think, oh, um, what would be interesting to talk about? But I would never think like, let's talk about Ricky Gervais's anti-trans routine. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, if the only point was to do it and then but by doing it you would upset people Mm. because you're repeating like nasty or hateful Mm. things again I completely agree I think I I definitely understand the point of certain you know artists or individuals their their work or even I suppose in some cases themselves because they're almost inextricable from their work Mm. really having a real sort of visceral um creating really visceral reaction in people but I also do think that um a, I agree that I'm not sure Ayn Rand is, is that type of individual. She might have been. Like, she might have been, if she was on Twitter nowadays, like Ex- someone like Katie Hopkins. Exactly. But well, she wasn't. Yeah. I think that's the thing. Um, Because I, cause I always think of it in terms of, like, I don't know, Walt Disney and the fact that he genuinely is somebody that, like, if, if he had been on Twitter, I think, if we were more aware of his views in real time, mm. we'd probably have a way more sort of visceral reaction to who he was as a person because he was fucking terrible but I think um, there is that sort of general consensus in terms of people understanding that you know generations of people have enjoyed his work and it's very complicated essentially but I think and it's like what is in the work like as if it isn't in the work we uh, at university we did um death of the author and and so and it was always supposed to be that everyone it's completely separate from their biography mm-hmm. it, it's like the work exists it can it can reflect on its culture and its time but it, it absolutely isn't important what's true and what's not it isn't important what Sylvia Plath uh, did with Ted Hughes like it's just her poem that's important very true and I think that's the thing 
Walt Disney's. You just have to kind of ignore that and go, that's an interesting biography over there for people who care. And over here, it's Pinocchio. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. If people want to have an issue with, um, I think the film's called Song of the South, the one which... I'm pretty sure there was some sort of like slavery imagery or, or oh, God, narrative. Right. I can't remember, but I think that film has either been banned or reworked. That that makes sense. But The Little yeah. Mermaid, you know, uh, aside from the like offensively yeah. bad Jamaican accent that Sebastian has, I'm like, it's pretty much it's pretty much fine in and of itself. Yeah. So your fourth bookshelfie is Under the Net by Iris Murdoch. You have said that you love all of her novels and they make you mm. feel braver because her characters make huge decisions and then go on to cope. Can you tell me what it is specifically that you love about Under the Net and I guess what decisions were made in that book? Well, so the reason I chose Under the Net because I couldn't choose, I knew I wanted to have an, <clears throat> an Iris Murdoch book and then I couldn't choose which of the ones to talk about. So I put Under the Net, which is her first novel. Now, I love it. I love anyone who lives in London, I think would enjoy her novels because there's a lot of London in them. There's always characters walking around. They'll be in, you know, um, whether it's central or north or west, you'll just get this real taste of London then. And and um, she writes about a London where I think so much is possible. And I think often, uh, reflecting on it now, it's because the characters have money. Like even if they're skints, they've got money. Under the Nets does involve a guy who doesn't have very much money trying to get some. But, you know, he's always still drunk and in nice places. It, um, he's not ever destitute. I guess it's a very middle class kind of um, skint is what he has. The reason I say big decisions is like the first time I read an Iris Murdoch, and I don't think it was under the net. I think it was like Black, the Black Prince or the Philosopher's Pupil. There was an infidelity in it. And what happened in the story is a couple cheated together and then they left their partners and got together. And then the partners got other partners and then carried on. And it was so... I was reading it thinking, oh my God, people survive. It must have been at a point in my 20s where I'd been with a boyfriend for a few years and I thought if we broke up, he would die and then and then and and I wouldn't know what to do that what what did you do if you broke there was no life after a long relationship and I was reading this book about these people who just were unhappy and then changed things I was like oh my god is that possible and then and then after and after some time people just move on and they're still alive living their lives and you haven't ruined everything and so I, I broke up with my boyfriend wow. and I remember being on a bus going oh my god if they can do it I can do it <laughs> and I broke up with my boyfriend and it made me feel like an actual adult I thought oh, I'm like someone in an Iris Murdoch book who just isn't happy and does something about it and then I think that um with another boyfriend a couple of years later I was reading an Iris Murdoch book and I realized I'm gonna break up with him and then I started to be like oh no they're dangerous Iris Murdoch novels <laughs> because you always break up with someone <laughs> because she, she would tell stories that would be dramatic and they'd be very much about human behavior but she's very forgiving of all human behavior I feel like and I, I know this is a terrible thing to say because I'm not a man, but I always think, I think she writes really good men, like really kind of flawed, but they make sense to me. Whereas in the real world, quite often men don't make sense to me. Um, whereas she makes them make sense. And I think she was fascinated with men and love men. And most of her characters are, her central characters are male. And she is just so clever that what what's very deftly put in her into her books, and I would say this is true of Under the Net, is lots of philosophy, lots of philosophical ideas or characters who are writers writing philosophy. She wrote nonfiction books as well. Like she wrote a biography of Jean-Paul Sartre. And I think she may have done philosophy at university. There's a couple of films about her life. And there's one called Iris where Judy Dench plays her and it's about her 
um, Alzheimer's, I believe, that she had. Um, and so, yeah, she's just an incredible brainiac, but she was kind of bisexual and before they had a proper word for it, polyamorous. So she had long, intensive um, relationships with both sexes outside of her marriage because her she had such passionate intellectual connections with people. So there's lots that I find very aspirational about her. I need to get me some Iris Murdoch in my life. I'm like, I'd really I recommend it. Read really recommend I want to grow yeah. up and be an adult and find a boyfriend to then yeah. break up with and feel really like womanly what? about it. Can you tell me some more about some other Iris Murdoch books that you've enjoyed? Well, The Sea, The Sea, which would have been the most obvious one to choose. And that one, again, is about, it's a man and he's healing and he swims in the sea every day. And, um, she just makes you want to do whatever her characters are doing. So you read this book about a man who's living on the top of a hill, going swimming in the cold sea, living alone. And you're like, that's what I want. I'm going to get a cottage. I'm going to get good at cold swimming. I'm just going to see the colour of the sky every day and watch the seasons change. Um, Yeah, everything she writes about is so attractive to me. I always want to do it. I want to get, a, I want to be a, a gambler who's lost all his money. <laughs> I, I want to, I want to do this thing. Yeah. I always, I, um, I guess I just, her world in her world, everyone is so alive. Like mm-hmm. no one's just, you know, on the train, reading a paper, going into work, doing a nine to five. They're very much seeking things and reacting to each other. Okay, this is definitely noted for um, lockdown reading because if there's anything I could do with feeling right now, it's alive. So yeah, <laughs> thank you yes, very much. Yeah. <laughs> so your fifth and final bookshelfie this week is "Your Voice in Your Head" by Emma Forrest, recommended to you by your friend Dolly. I must. I want to say Alderton, right? It's Dolly, isn't it? Yes. yes. Dolly There's Alderton. only one Dolly, isn't there? Like as soon as I saw Dolly, I was like, it's got to be her. Um, and you've now kindly bought it for lots of your friends, and you said it's mm. incredible around healing and heartbreak. Tell me more about it. So Dolly recommended it, and I was actually going to put Dolly's book on here um, because I, I, it's it, it's a uh, it's actually quite similar in that it's about one person's emotional journey. But in reading about it, I think there's so much for anyone, no matter at what point of your life you currently are. So um, Dolly asked if I'd read this book. It's by a woman called Emma Forrest. And I was like, no, I've never read it. And she just sent it to me in the post. And she didn't really tell me anything about it. So there I am in the bath. And my first thought on the first page was, wow, this woman writes incredible prose. Just just beautiful sentences. Um, There's something about brilliant writing when actually it's the simplicity the fact that it's not trying very hard that makes you look like go like oh my god I know all these words but when you put them in this order you're right, so, so first, the first thing you get is wow and actually my husband who read it straight after me because I kept talking about it while I was reading it that it was so much that he was like okay I will just read it he similarly was in the bath on the first page he's like oh my god this woman can write so so you just have that effect that's the first thing and then by the second page I was like this person is opening their veins. Um, so that's when, so the title, your voice in my head, she's writing the book to her therapist because she had, uh, and just, this man sounds so incredible, an amazing, amazing, amazing therapist and her life after years of therapy. And when, I don't want to give any spoilers away actually, cause I actually think everyone should read this book. Um, but when he wasn't in her life anymore, that what he would say to situations, I guess in a very simplistic way, it was helpful once someone has said things that are very wise to you has helped you through certain situations that can stay with you and you can reuse it or revisit Mm. it or imagine 
how they would respond. Um, and I say that it's amazing about heartbreak. A lot happens in this book. She's young. She has memories. She travels. Um, again, there's exploration of um, assault. Um, although, um, so something I should say is that sometimes when people tell me a book is going to be about abuse or assault, I think, oh, I can't read. I mean, it's going to be a bit much. And I would say that while the book is incredibly written, it's not something that's um, a really violent episode that's going to make you not be able to read it, actually. I think what's very interesting about it it's one of those situations which I think many people experience when they're young, but at the time it was just something that you kind of cope with and understand. And then you look back and go, oh, that's not right. <laughs> or that person shouldn't have done that. Or that adult should have looked after me in that situation. Mm-hmm. So it's actually completely fascinating. Also something about that as well is that when you're sometimes when you're 15 or 16 or 17, you don't know that you're attractive. Mm-hmm. And so people's responses to you don't make any sense because you think you're disgusting mm-hmm. and and that's why sometimes you don't even know to protect yourself or know to make to know that men might want things from you that kind of stuff she writes about all of that brilliantly but also she's always telling you her personal story she's not trying to talk about that in a generalized way I'm, I'm extrapolating that from the story and then the heartbreak she she's with this partner and it's so passionate it's so passionate it's it's um you know texting each other 150 times a day it's love poems it's planning their unborn children it's that kind of thing where and it and it's the most dangerous kind of relationship actually and i say dangerous only because there's a kind of person loving this way is is dangerous because they will b- break your heart but where their happiness like being around them is the happiest biggest adventure the best thing in that that could ever happen mm. and then what happens is that person completely goes cold on her and again, I think that's an experience that everyone has had mm. um, of that, and, and that doesn't make any sense. And you almost have to relive that relationship. You you doubt if it was real. How could they cut you off? How can it go? That that whole part of it, I've never read it written about better. Um, and and so that's why with friends, obviously someone's always breaking up with someone, and I'm always like, right, what's your address? Give me your postcode. <laughs> that you have to read because I think it's perfect to read while you're going through it because she describes it so brilliantly but also if you've ever had it um but also the human experience of it it's a it's a really amazing amazing um I guess yeah autobiography Mm. and and I've read her other work as well I read her one of her novels the other day and she's just a brilliant writer in general your series out of your mind explores the theme of heartbreak did you happen to read your voice in my head around that time and if not what was your sort of inspiration in terms of you know looking into that theme um so I actually didn't read it I read it last year so um so I'd written the series beforehand but I think I'm very interested in heartbreak and the reason is um so I um I broke up with a boyfriend just after I'd turned 17 so it was my first boyfriend it was less than a year so say 11 months and um I was affected by that breakup for such a long time I mean I mean like up and I mean I'm nearly so 17 so over 25 years I would say that was still my biggest thing if someone had said to me what pain are you carrying around with you what's the worst thing that was the bit where I thought I wouldn't ever survive and then I've and it took so many stages and when I wrote my show and something I've noticed obviously an interesting story for us culturally are single women who can't survive or women without men looking for men and and I see that there's so much comedy in that and there's so much humanity in it. So it's not to criticise those stories, but I definitely didn't want to write something about a woman looking for a man. I wanted to write about the opposite. It was a woman who's trying to feel complete without f- 
fitting someone else into her life. And I also really had, I wanted to have a woman who hadn't got over someone. Um, so in the show, we've, we've kind of upped the ante a bit and she it's like she's jilted why she's trying on a wedding dress after he's proposed to her. So they've been engaged for a couple of months and then he comes in and says he can't do it. Because my experience was, I I honestly, I fell in love with this guy so deeply that I, I really believed it was going to be the rest of my life. I, I actually, I had never, I'd never, not even like, like never kissed anyone before, mm-hmm. never had a physical experience. I just... It was just, it, I went from no love to this huge thing and I just didn't know that it would stop. And then he met someone else straight afterwards or, or probably actually he overlapped. He had another girlfriend and then he, um, anyway, it was so, so traumatic at the time and it took such a long time to heal from it that I felt like I keep seeing stories about people who move on really quickly. Like in a film, what would happen is Jennifer Aniston would be like crying in one scene, pretending to eat vanilla ice cream. And the next day, a guy would be nice to her and you'd go, oh, good, she's going to go out with this guy now. And in real life, I feel like there's such a long time. And it's not that you can't have relationships in that time or even fancy other people, but in terms of being like actually emotionally available, there might be loads of stuff to process mm. and um and so that was and so I, that's what I wanted to write with the show and I think I'm very very interested in heartbreak mm. anyway especially people's representation of it because it is something every single human being has experienced uh, and and as along with you know rejection and liking people who don't like you back there are certain things that when people write or express them amazingly it connects you again to your experience of it and you get to kind of judge where you are um and so I hadn't even put two and two together actually about the the themes of Mm. it um because I wonder how it would have changed if I had read it and I could have just copied it (laughs) and put it on the BBC (laughs) thank you so much Sarah it's honestly been such a pleasure but before I let you go I do I have to ask you a very difficult question um which is yeah. you, you're prepared for it. You've had however long this is overrun to prepare for it, which is if you had to choose one book from your list as your favourite, which book would it be and why? Okay, so I'm going to make this look really easy. So anyone who makes it look really hard looks like a wuss. <laughs> I'm going to choose Your Voice in My Head by Emma Forrest. Nice. And the reason is um, it's the one of the books I read most recently. And actually out of the five, if I had to just give a book to someone I knew nothing about, like uh, just just somebody listening if I had to like push a book into their hand, looking at that list, I think, oh, they might not like this or this might be a bit too full on for them. So actually, I think your voice in my head, that any human being would connect with it because of what it talks about in terms of love. I think lots of people don't think that they deserve therapy. I think books about therapy in general can be quite um, useful for people as well. Um, because for a really long time, I thought it was something that was only for like really really posh people or people with really terrible problems. And actually, I think I think now it could be a very, very useful thing that everyone deserves. Um, and it is, it's beautifully written and it's the one I've read most recently. So I'll say that one. God, you really did make that look very easy. Now everybody's going to be like <laughs> scrambling to make themselves yeah. look as succinct and on point. Sarah, thank you so much. That was I'm honestly such a huge fan of your work you're so smart and honestly I just knew this would be a very very enjoyable conversation but even then it exceeded my expectations thank you it was great Ah, thank you so much you're a brilliant interviewer these all go so well I think you'll have I think they'll all go so well my fear is just that everyone's honestly like I've seen the list and everyone's amazing I'm like god how am I gonna rein this in I'm just gonna be like oh my god so anyway about (laughs) that breakup tell me more girl but yeah (laughs) 
I'm Yomi Adegake and you've been listening to the Women's Prize for Fiction podcast, brought to you by Baileys and produced by Birdline Media. Head to our website, www.womensprizeforfiction.co.uk, where you can discover this year's 16 long-listed books covering both new and well-established writers and a wide range of genres. You definitely want to click subscribe because in our next episode, we will be exploring the five books that shaped Deborah Francis White. Please rate and review this podcast. It's the easiest way to help spread the word about the female talent you've heard about today. Thanks very much for listening and see you next time.